We are working our way through the book of Mark. Uh, we started Mark at the beginning of the year, actually on Christmas uh, service on the 26th. We started the book of Mark and we are slowly working our way, well, actually for us, we are rapidly working our way through the book of Mark. This morning we will be in Mark 2, 13 through 17. Mark 2, 13 through 17. Let me read for you Mark 2, 13 through 17, then we'll pray and go to the Word of God. He went out again beside the sea, and the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. Thank you, Lord, for the the reminders, even in song, as we read in Psalm 103 this morning, your kindness, your forbearance, your forgiveness of our sin and iniquity. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you in all things. Thank you, Father, for uh, that praise of proclamation for your people, that you have shown grace and kindness in those who fear you. I thank you, Father, for your knowledge uh, that you are not unaware of our sin, but in Christ you have removed them as far as the east is from the west. You have taken our sin. I pray you would give us clarity this morning. I pray you would help us, Father, as we long to be those who serve you, not just in action, but in heart, that you would help us to live uh, not as Pharisees, but as those who love and honor you for your glory and for your name. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. As we work our way through the book of Mark, I want to remind you, Mark and the purpose of Mark is not just a, uh, a historical narrative, but its intention is to declare the, with urgency the gospel. Mark is the shortest of the gospels. As we read the gospel of Mark, we'll see again and again, immediately, 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 which gives a tone of action. Mark shares uh, less teaching of Jesus and fewer parables. It's the quickest of the three synoptic gospels. Uh, And its intention is to give the urgency of the gospel, particularly to Romans or to those uh, who were in Rome at the time. As Mark writes, he quickly summarizes for us what the purpose of his book will be. If you want to look back in your Bible at Mark chapter 1, verse 15. After John was arrested, Jesus comes to Galilee proclaiming and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The rest of Mark goes on to summarize that statement, the preaching of Jesus, that the Messiah has come. The time is at hand. What has been promised has been fulfilled. And now the Messiah is here. The kingdom of God is present. 
And therefore, we ought to repent and believe the gospel. It's a common question to ask, why did Jesus come? What did he come to do? Jesus would say, he came to teach. He came to teach. He came to make known the truth. Yes, he also came to die for our sins. That's the right answer, right? Why did Jesus come when I ask my little children? They say, to die for our sins. And it is true. Uh, But he came to teach. As John prepared the way that the gospel would be made known, Christ did not come just to die. He came to live a perfect life in perfect righteousness, to teach that mankind is not and cannot be righteous, that only by Christ can they be saved. And he came to teach and to proclaim that the the Messiah who had been professed and prophesied uh, and preached and proclaimed by the prophets was here and would be made known. And as we look at the book of Mark, uh, we've discussed a few times, you see a few different categories of people in the book of Mark. We see the disciples of Jesus, those who would follow him and are after him. We see the crowds who are very entertained and excited uh, and at times very desirous of Jesus and at times very against him. And we see the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And so today as we look at it, we see first the crowds and Jesus' teaching, uh, just in brief, the statement of, remember, Jesus' ongoing ministry, his mission while he's here, is to teach. And so though Mark doesn't include the teaching, he again and again says, he went by the sea and the crowd came to him, and what was he doing? He was teaching. He was making the truth known. In verse 14, as he passed by the way, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. You guys know Alphaeus, right? It's his son, Levi. No. But historically, this is a real person talking about a real guy. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And he reclined at his table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So who is Levi? If you look at verses 14 through 15, you see Levi, who is a tax collector and goes to follow Jesus. And then we see with Levi, there are tax collectors and sinners. These are separate categories in the statement that's made. But in a Jewish mind, these are one and the same. A tax collector is a sinner. A tax collector is probably to them the worst of sinners. If you've grown up reading your Bible and are aware in the Gospels, you know this, that tax collectors were hated, particularly Jewish tax collectors, because it's believed that they betrayed their people. They worked for Rome, and they collected money from Jews and others for the sake of Rome. And the way that taxes would work at that time, what they collected overage or took above and beyond would be there. So it was a very wealthy position to be. It's almost like, uh, you you might describe it like little mob bosses under the big mob, uh, but it's not necessarily. It's little government functions under the big government. Uh, And though we might feel like government is the mafia, they're not. They're organized and purposed for that. But being less organized, there was far more corruption in the Roman Empire. And so Levi is one of these tax collectors. You probably know him better by Matthew. And this is actually the only place in Mark and in Luke that he's called Levi. We're not sure why that is. We know that Jesus likes to change people's names. We know that he's not against the giving of nicknames, right? A lot of youth pastors try to be Jesus and 
Somebody named their kid Matthew, and they call him Bubble Boy or something else. They give him a new name. But Jesus often did the same. We see Simon, and Jesus says, okay, we got two Simons here. As we read the disciples, there's two Simons. And he doesn't go Simon A and Simon B. He says, you will be Peter, the rock. That's nice of him. I know one of our own, Nate, uh, he was very offended when he used to be Nate number two because he wants to be Nate number two. I want to be Nate number one. So Peter wasn't Peter number one. He was Simon, Peter. Rather, he was Peter number one. Anyway, you understand. So it's possible that Levi, being a tax collector, changed his name to Matthew, and, and he wanted to be called Matthew. Uh, we also see Paul, who was once Saul. So you're reading your Bible, and you're like, who's this Saul guy? And now there's this Paul guy. Because Paul didn't want to be Saul. He took on uh, a different name, uh, probably a name he already carried, and that most would carry a Greek and a Jewish name. Uh, and he was Paul. Because as he remained Saul, many Christian churches would be fearful because Saul was killing Christians. So what's in a name anyway? But Levi is Matthew. Levi is a tax collector. He is hated. He's despised. As a tax collector, he's going to hang out with pretty much just other tax collectors. The Jewish community is not going to welcome him. He's looked at as one who is not welcome, not invited, not participating. Right? If Bartholomew's having a bar mitzvah for his kid, Levi's not getting invited. He's not welcome. He's not coming. But Jesus calls him and he follows. And it says, like Levi, many followed him. Levi and the like followed Christ. Now this just means that they were following him, they were going with him, but it would appear also that they were following him in the sense that they were hearing Christ's teaching, longing to follow it. Not just curious about it, not just interested in it, uh, but they wanted fellowship with Christ. They wanted to know these things. And throughout the Gospels, we will see these sinners coming to Christ and crying out to Christ and Christ frequently saying that their faith is greater even than those who are in Israel. We sometimes see these types of statements and we think, oh yeah, we're supposed to hang out with sinners. We're supposed to be with sinners. That's our job. We are to go and find sinners and do what sinners do. Well, that's not the case. The statement is not that Jesus went to the parties and he was taking part in the parties and partying it up and doing what they did because he wanted to relate to them. The statement is that Jesus was at a dinner with them in Levi's house, who's now following him as a disciple, and Jesus is making the truth known. Were there likely sinners in there doing sinful things? Yes, very likely. But Jesus is there not participating in it. We don't see anywhere in the Bible, and this is speculative, but it could be that Jesus didn't get invited to many parties a second time. Uh, that Jesus was often there and he was teaching. Uh, and many of the times where Jesus, you, you, we'll look later uh, in Luke, you can see Jesus was invited to the house of a scribe and he went. And I highly doubt Jesus was invited back to that house because Jesus described that man as being faithless and praised a prostitute who was anointing him with oil and repenting of her sin. So while we see Jesus participating and going to the house of sinners, we don't see Jesus living in sin. We see him frequently proclaiming the gospel and people who are sinners repenting and following him. I think we need to be very careful in our time. It's easy for us to go, well, Jesus hung out with sinners. So that's why I kind of dabble in all my old sins so I can remain relatable to my friends. 
Jesus wasn't relatable because, relatable because he sinned. Jesus gave the way out of sin. And these tax collectors and sinners rejoiced over it so much so that they followed him. They left the life that would benefit them. Levi, it says, followed him, immediately went and followed him. Now, just like Peter and James and John, it doesn't mean this is the first time he ever saw Jesus. Jesus had been there. He had been around. That People knew who Jesus was at this point. This does not mean that Levi had never heard of Jesus. Jesus just walked by and said, follow me, and he just followed him. He likely had heard Jesus' teaching. He knew what was going on. He feels an enormous weight of guilt, not only for the man he is in sin, but the profession he has chosen. He feels the way being outcast from Israel. And as he hears Jesus' teaching, he likely already heard John the Baptist's teaching, maybe even baptized by John, maybe already pursuing that. And as Jesus says, follow me, he runs from his old life to follow him. And so as he follows Jesus, and the sinners and the tax collectors gather around Jesus, the scribes are aware. Because like all good Pharisees or legalists, they might not participate, but they know what's going on. They're aware of what's happening. They want to know what's happening. And so as they know that Jesus is eating with these sinners and tax collectors, he's eating with those who Israel despises, they question They ask his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The scribes, who are self-righteous, hate Jesus for eating with these people. You might think it's not a big deal, right? You don't really care who you eat with. You go to Jack in the Box, you get your two tacos like Good American does. You sit down at your little booth, and you don't care who's sitting next to you. You're just there to eat tacos, right? I ain't here to make friends. I'm here to get cheap tacos. Well, in the modern world, hospitality and people sitting at your table would be far more closer to what we see here in that this is fellowship, this is table fellowship, this time together. Food often unites people. It reminds them of their need to be sustained and the joy of Christ in it. And so Christ is not just casually eating, and eating was not viewed in Israel as a casual thing. To eat with someone was to condone them to join them, to love them, to care for them, to be hospitable to them and to have them in your home was to have fellowship. Many churches even call this a breaking of bread together or to sit down together and have table fellowship because it meant something. And the scribes and the Pharisees are appalled at this. How could he sit at a table with sinners? How could he sit next to a woman who had been a prostitute How could he eat with Levi? How could he even dip his bread in the same dipping that Levi, the filthy tax collector, would dip his bread in? They're appalled. They cannot imagine that he would even do such a thing. Because in their mind, these people are filthy and dirty sinners. They don't even know how to have a conversation with them. The scribes and the Pharisees would look at Levi and have, what ground could we possibly relate to him on? We are those who love God. We are those who know the truth. We are those who look at the word. The scribes, particularly, are those who study the law. 
And so these are men who know the word of God, men who have copies of the Old Testament, who study copies of it, who know the word. They're Pharisees, which is in this point in history are the most religious, most strict, most stern people of following the law. The Pharisees would take the law of God and they had a practice to not only take the law, but they would say, hey, we want to guard ourselves even further. So we're going to make laws on top of it. So the Pharisees would have over 600 Old Testament laws that are to be followed, and they would add an additional over 600 to make sure that you didn't break those real laws. So one of the, the more classic explanations of this is the Pharisees would have a law that on the Sabbath you weren't allowed to spit. Because on the Sabbath you're not allowed to work, right? You can't till the ground. But what if you were to spit in such a way that your spit hit the dirt and then the dirt was caused to roll? you would be tilling the ground. So you must not even spit. You might accidentally work. They would put law on top of law. And so when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, he often rebukes them for following the teachings of man and not the teachings of God. And these scribes who studied the law, these are the Pharisees of Pharisees. They're the experts. They're the ones that are going to say yay or nay. They're the ones that are going to say this is what the word of God says. And so when they see Jesus willing to eat with these filthy people, they are appalled. Those they cannot relate to at all because they have so removed themselves. They can't even talk with them. Many Pharisees would put themselves on opposite sides of the street. They would stay away. They would look for every way to get free from them. And so while the Pharisees are appalled, they ask the disciples, why would Jesus do this? Does he not know how dirty and unclean they are? Why would he associate with the filthy? And Jesus, when he heard it, said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What does Jesus mean when he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners? He explains to these Pharisees, these scribes, he didn't come to call the holy people. He came to call the filthy people. And so we might hear this and go, does that mean Jesus didn't come to save the scribes and the Pharisees because they don't need him? Does that mean that he's telling them, I didn't come for you, I came for them? We could take it that way. We, we could see this as Jesus didn't come for the righteous, he came for the sinners. He, he didn't come to call all of Israel, he came to restore the filthy of Israel. He didn't come that he might perfect the perfected, he just came to give a little help to the ones that need it. Were we to only read this passage and this statement, we might think that Jesus is categorizing people into the righteous and the sinners and saying, I didn't come to save the righteous. I came only to save the sinners. There are people who don't need me, but there are people who do. At a surface reading, if this was all you to read, you might come to that conclusion. But as we have the whole word of God, 
the Gospels. One reason it is a great joy to have the parallel Gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is because we get insight, particularly into stories like this in Mark, uh, from Matthew and Luke, what does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners? Well, if you look at your handout, let's look at a little frame of reference to what Jesus means by this statement, just by looking at the other passages where this same story happens. In Matthew 9, 9, 13, uh, 9, 9 through 13, we have the same story going on. Jesus is eating with sinners, and the scribes and Pharisees are disturbed outraged, appalled. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In Mark's gospel, we don't see this included, and it could be because Mark writes to Romans. Mark doesn't write to Jews as Mark writes, he doesn't include all kinds of Old Testament references. Really, that very beginning section where he says John the Baptist was coming is the only place where he quotes the Old Testament directly. And so throughout the book of Mark, we have the relating of the stories in a non-Jewish way, explaining that Jesus came to save sinners, not the righteous. But in Matthew, where it is written more to a Jewish audience, uh, we have a little more detail here. And that's because different people tell stories different ways, right? As you get to know people, you spend time with people, uh, you realize they tell stories in different ways. I, I'm realizing right now as I'm about to use Austin Wilhite as an illustration, I used him last week because I just looked at him and I thought how funny it was that he sang at Chelsea. But anyway, uh, Austin, two weeks ago, I didn't tell him this, uh, but I was thinking about my friend Austin and getting to know Austin better. Uh, Austin is the type of guy that tells the whole story, right? Every detail is going to be in that story. I might get home and say, I stopped by Ralph's, I bought something, right? But Austin's going to say, I went to Ralph's and I parked, I parked like way in the back, you know, like way in the back. And then as I was walking in, I was like walking by people. And then this guy, he was like crazy. And he's, he's got all this thing. And I'm like, is that part of the Ralph's story? Are we talking about the guy? Nope. He's just describing the guy and then talking about how he gets to Ralph's. Austin's a full story guy. Many of you, you have a varying level of how you tell a story, right? We'll be in the same situation, and you tell the story, and I go, oh, that's not how I would have explained it, All right? In the Gospels, we have the same thing, the true account with a little bit of a different explanation. So Matthew gives more details. He's considering his audience, and he's saying, this is, this is what Jesus clearly said to the Pharisees. He said, go back and look at this. Think about this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What is he telling them? He's telling these scribes who are supposed to know the law. Look back at this passage. Go to the book of Isaiah. See what God says. See what he desires of you. See what he requires of you. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. He explains to them. The Pharisees don't like this idea because they are self-righteous. As Jesus is describing, he's not saying that the Pharisees are righteous and they're good in and of themselves and they're okay. The Pharisees are self-righteous. 
They've promoted themselves in such a way, in such a way that they don't even know how to talk to Levi. They find themselves so holy they can't have a conversation with him. They've neglected the greater things of the law, that mankind is created in the image of God. That there is not a separation in man, that you should have no understanding, no ability to relate to another human. There should be no sin in them that you can't think, I don't even know how I would talk to them. I can't even look at them. They disgust me. But the Pharisees don't have that choice. Anyone that opposes them because of their self-righteous, they have to find a way to despise. And we see this in Jesus and John. In your handout, Matthew eleven eighteen through 19. Remember, John the Baptist came very different from Jesus. Jesus is in the cities. He's at the parties of Levi. He is explaining and expressing and teaching. Tax collectors and sinners are coming to him, and he is having fellowship with them and teaching the word of God. John, on the other hand, lived in the wilderness. He wore camel hair. He looked like an Old Testament prophet in New Testament times. He ate grasshoppers and locusts. He screamed and yelled at people. He was a wild man. He was serious about the following of God and called sinners to repent just as Jesus. But the scribes didn't like John either. What did they say about John? They say John, he, for John came neither eating or drinking, but they said he has a demon. John's demon possessed. John's a wild man. He's crazy. You can't trust him. Don't listen to anything John says. Listen to us. We're the scribes. We're the Pharisees. Don't listen about that repentance. It's righteousness. Just be righteous. We are the righteous ones, not the filthy ones. Now Jesus comes eating and drinking, sitting with tax collectors and sinners. And what do they say of Jesus? Look at him. He's a glutton and a drunk. They can't be appeased either way. As John completely separates himself from civilization to proclaim repentance and the gospel, they hate repentance and the gospel. They hate that they would be called to repent. They can find nothing wrong within themselves. Why would John have this message that his sinners must repent? Because there's people like us who don't need to. We're righteous Pharisees. So they hate John. So he has a demon. And Jesus comes with the same message, not living quite like John. He's in the community. He is with people. He's fellowshipping with them. His teaching happens in a very different location. But his message is the same. Repent and trust the gospel. And they hate it just the same. Because it's not about what Jesus did and it's not about what John did. It wasn't about their preferences and life choices, which... For them, aren't. It's a strange way to describe it. But it's not the things they did. It's the message they preached that the Pharisees hated. They hated the message. They hated that Jesus and John would come and say, within you is sin and you must repent. They liked the idea that there are evil people out there and they are our enemy. They liked the idea that they were righteous and faithful they were good and true. And if the world could just be more like the Pharisees, then the world would finally be right. And anyone who had a message that they needed to repent, that they were sinners, that they needed God, that they were not the heroes of the story, but the enemies, they condemned. 
They could not accept the message. When Jesus says, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners, he is not excluding the Pharisees and the tax collectors. He's including them, and they hate it because they find themselves so righteous. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus warns them. If you look again at your handout, Matthew 22, 23, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Those that the religious people would look at and say, these are the people that have it all together. These are the people that know everything there is to know. These are the people who do all the right things. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly might appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What does Jesus say to the scribes and Pharisees? He says, you are doing insane things to honor God. You're doing crazy things to honor God. He says, you're not just going to the temple to tithe finances. You're not just giving of the money. You're tithing cumin. You know what cumin is? It's what makes a taco a taco. They're, they're tithing their spices, right? They're tithing down to the spice rack. It's a lot more than makes a taco a taco. Anyway, it's soy and deep fried. Anyway, so cumin, the seasoning that you don't even know what it is, but you love it. If you knew, you wouldn't give it up. You'd be like, that's my cumin. I already gave my money to God. Why does he want my cumin? The Pharisees didn't feel that way. They said, he gets some cumin too, and some mint and some dill, all the spices. Go to the spice rack. We're spice rack tithing, baby. It's time. 10% of that whole spice rack, that belongs to God. They're feeling good about it. I do the right things, right? Have you ever been that Christian? You find yourself in a situation where you've done some wrong. And when you start listening to yourself, I go above and beyond. I tithe out of my spice rack. I do everything. Yeah, I know other people are, you know, they're having fun. Sunday, fun day. I'm at church all the time. And I'm not just some Sunday Christian. I don't just show up on a Sunday and put my two hours in. I'm at midweeks. I do all kinds of stuff. I'm sharing the gospel with people. You should see me at work. It's like Jesus worked here. It's impressive. And you're telling me I need to repent? Do you know who I am? 
These scribes, these Pharisees were very good at doing all the right things outside. And notice that Jesus doesn't tell them, you ought to neglect the outside things. See, in our society, in our time, Christian, this is what our heart does. We see other people who are doing all the right things, and we go, you're such a hypocrite. You think you're so self-righteous. What are you judging by? You're looking at your life, and you're saying, well, I'm not that perfect. I don't do all those right things. So you must be a fake. Because there's no way you could actually care for your heart and be faithful and do things that I don't do. Jesus doesn't tell them, you need to stop doing faithful things. He doesn't say, get out of your spice rack. Why are you tithing your spice rack? He says, you should have done the weightier things and not neglected those. You should have sold out for Christ. You should have stopped trying to put on an outward show while you don't think about your heart. You should have served Christ in what was faithful from the heart. Jesus' description to the Pharisees is not you're too legalistic here. It's that you have no introspection. You do what is faithful, but you don't deal with your heart. You're concerned of the righteousness before men, and you live your whole life that you might proclaim that righteousness. But you don't deal with the inward man. He gives them descriptions. He says, you you take the cup and you wash the outside and make it look so great, but you're drinking out of a filthy vessel. You're like the well-decorated tombstone that's beautiful. When people walk by, they say, man, it's so great, but all that's inside it is a dead man's bones. You're a sinner in denial. You're not the righteous. You're the self-righteous. We see this even more clearly in Luke 5, 27, 32. Again, the same story, and Jesus makes clear here. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. As Jesus is made known in the Gospel of Luke as the Messiah who has come to save man, Luke includes repentance. Remember, this is a brief story. This doesn't mean that this story is different in all their Gospels. You're getting from the perspective of what they thought was important to emphasize. And as Matthew thought it was important, the Jews need to see that they have failed to follow the Word of God. And Mark thought the Romans need to understand how incredible it was that Christ came. And Luke believes they need to hear repentance in this section. But this is the message that all of them would include. There is not a gospel that does not say that mankind needs to repent. There is not a gospel that says there are some who are holy and righteous and live merely as an example to others. Remember, the gospels are descriptive of Jesus' life, not prescriptive of how you should live. There is prescription in them, but the description of what Jesus does doesn't mean that's what you should do. Because Jesus went to feasts and did those things, it's not a prescription that all people need to find pagan friends, get one of them to repent, and then throw pagan parties so they can preach the gospel. Right? 
This is not Jesus's plan for the church. It's not that Christians would go out, find pagan friends, go to pagan parties and preach the gospel. Might you find yourself at a pagan party? Very well. Yeah, you've got kids in baseball and karate and all kinds of stuff and their parents throw parties and you think you're showing up to a bar mitzvah and you didn't know that you were showing up to a party with a bunch of people that got a bunch of kids in elementary school and still live like they were party kids in high school. And now you're at a party and everybody's getting trashed. What do you do? You live like Jesus. You probably don't get invited back. (laughs) But it's not the description that we live to go find the sinful and party with them so that we might tell them the truth. Many who love their sin want to not just neglect the things that they're called to do, but they want to live in sin and call other hypocrites, call others the self-righteous. Jesus deals with the heart of both. And I don't think our biggest problem, Faith Bible Menifee, is that we, we really want to party. And so we're looking for excuses to party. Uh, while I say that, depending on what you mean by partying, yeah, some of you are really just interested in partying. Uh, but it's nice, clean, fun partying. But we are more likely in America at this point, many of you having grown up in the church, many of you been involved in such pagan, debased things that we look back and we say, I know my sinfulness. If you are prone to something, you're going to be prone to self-righteousness. You're going to be prone to look at the world and say, how could I even talk to them? What could I even relate to them on? What could I even discuss with them? You're going to see the homosexual. You're going to see the Republican or the Democrat, whichever one, I assume in our church, probably Democrat, I'm not going to pretend. But you're going to see your opposition And you're going to think, I've got nothing in common with them. And it might be that very thing you have in common with them. Self-righteousness. To think that you're not like them. That you can't relate to them. They're so heinous and evil. In Romans 1, as God describes the judgment of the world and the wrath of God against all unrighteousness and the reality of sin remaining on earth, and as God takes his hand back, the sinfulness in which man pursues, we see in Romans 1, 28, after further descriptions, he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Listen to the list. Evil, covetous, malicious. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, Ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree and those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them themselves, but give approval to those who practice. As you listen to that list, did you listen for your children? Was the one that shocked you be obedient to parents? And you're like, I got to remember that one's there. That one belongs there. 
as it does, we might take far too little the obedience of children and the importance of that. But did you primarily think of other people? Did you primarily think, I don't belong in that list? Because the point of that list is not that there is evil out there. The point of that list is that all in the world. And he makes that point in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, therefore, therefore, what does therefore mean? It means based upon what was just said, something else is true. So he says, this is the way of the world that God, they did not see fit to acknowledge God and God gave them over to sin and their sin was described. And he says, though they practice such things and they give approval to those who practice such things. He says, therefore, what? Therefore, they are evil and you exist as the righteous example. No. Therefore, those heinous people like that are sinners who Christ came to save. Thank you for not being so. No. Verse 1, chapter 2 of Romans, he says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What does that mean? Does it mean we have to grab our society's mantra and say, who are you to judge? No one's here to judge. We're not judgmental. You can do whatever works for you. Because when we go to parties and we go, hey, you don't have the same conviction. It's okay for you to get plastered. It's okay for you to work as a prostitute. It's okay for you to cheat on your taxes. It's okay for you to scream and yell at your kids as a form of discipline. It's okay for you to be an alcoholic, which is biblically known as a drunk. It's okay for you to hate your neighbors. It's okay for you to despise everyone around you. It's okay for you to be quarrelsome. It's okay for you to walk around in arrogance and pride and proclaim yourself as the hero of every story. It's okay for you not to submit to your husband. He's an idiot, and we all know it. It's okay for you not to love your wife. Nobody likes her. Woe to you, O man, who judge and approve, because you practice the very same things. So you want to categorize your sin in some way that in you, you're holy and faithful, and out there, they're filthy and dirty. You want to look and say, how could you, how could they, rather than run and come to Christ? You want to go to the party and you want to condemn with no hope for repentance, no clarity about the gospel. You want to be here to say that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and you're carrying it. That's where your heart lands. That's what he says, you, oh man, you have no excuse, you who judge, you who condemn, because you practice the very same things. You live in the same. Verse 2, he says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
He says, you who look at the world and condemn it, or do you think that somehow, though you do the very same things, you'll somehow escape? Do you think you can live like the scribes and Pharisees and say, look at that filthy world out there and look how disgusting they are, and I'm going to remove myself from them? Right? Christians plan for this. They want to find a big plot of land where they can invite all their Christian friends and they can make what our society calls a cult and all move there and remove themselves from the world and live in some kind of harvest, holy, hipster mecca. And then the world will be right. If we only had Christians, if we only lived with Christians, if I only worked with Christians, you know what you would find? Sinners in need of repentance. You know what would follow you all the way to the Mecca? Your sin and their sin. Christian, the message of the gospel is not everything is okay because you found Christ and now you're the righteous example. It's repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and put your faith in Christ. Do not live to judge the world, but live and let the judge of the world rightly clarify their sin and yours. Jonathan Edwards has a resolution. He says, when I see any sin or inferment or failure in someone else, I will not let it be an occasion for my own pride, my own arrogance, but let it be a reminder to me of my own sin and pitiful state before God. I think Jonathan Edwards wrote that resolution based off of Romans 2 because he saw that the rightful judgment of God falls on those who practice such things. And he did not remove himself, but saw himself as the one who would be rightfully judged. Verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Do you presume God is loving and faithful? God forgives. God is kind. I don't have to deal with my sin. I don't have to make my sin known. I can hide this. I can keep this within. I can live in this conflict. I can live with this gossip. I can live with this slander. I don't have to seek to have a submissive heart. I don't have to seek to love my wife. I can do these things because I'm good. I do what's right. I'm not a garbage human. I'm a greater human. He says, do you presume? Do you think because God has not killed you yet that he's not faithful and just? That he doesn't punish sin? That sin's okay now because Christ came and died? Is that the message that you hear in the gospel and in the Bible? That because Jesus died, we should go on sinning more and more? No, if you keep reading Romans, Paul says, by no means should we who are holy give in to sin? No. And he gives a warning here. He says, the kindness of God, the patience of God, is meant to lead you to repentance. It's meant to guide you to flee from sin. His kindness is not assigned to you, that everything is okay, that everything's fine and you don't have to worry. It is a reminder to you of his grace and compassion in the gospel of Christ, that you might see your sin as what it truly is, filthy, 
evil, and even unrelatable to you. That you might find parts of yourself that you feel like the description of how people feel like those out there. So you'd say, I don't even know this part of my heart anymore. Why does it keep showing up? I, I feel like I can't even relate to it, yet it continues to reveal itself. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, to participate in sanctification. But there is a warning here in verse 5. What if you don't see his kindness as forbearance, his patience, and pursue repentance? What if you go on living your life in such a way where you're always the hero, you're always the Pharisee, you're always the clean, and everyone else is dirty? What if you continue to live with a hard and unrepentant heart? Well, theologically, we would say you probably aren't his. And here he would say the same, because what awaits Christ's people is salvation. But he says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, because of your unwillingness to repent, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The fruit of a hardened heart, the fruit of a heart that refuses to repent, the fruit of a heart that hears the message of Christ and hears believe in the gospel, but not that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent as you believe in the gospel. The heart that says, I'm okay, I do the right things, I show up at the right places, I'm a good dad, I've never been to jail. He says, you're storing up for yourself wrath on the day of judgment. All of the kindness, all of the forbearance, all of the patience of God, that has led you to self-righteousness rather than repentance, you will be judged for. All of the grace that God has shown in causing the sun to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, and you presume, I deserve this because I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I did this. And you're not dependent upon Christ. You believe in yourself, not the gospel. He says, you are not storing up for yourself further kindness from God. You're storing for yourself wrath. I know this is not a joyful message to hear, but I hope it is a helpful one. We live in a time where the Christian faith means what you believe in on the surface. And barely bears fruit on the inward man. We believe in a society that loves doctrine, loves brief statements, loves summary, but hates self-introspection, hates dealing with sin, hates to hear that they would be sinners. We live in a society that wants to call those who separate themselves like John self-righteous, and those who do anything that you wouldn't even want to look at as pagan, and evil because we measure ourselves by ourselves. If we measured rightly, we would be every day shocked by the grace and the kindness and the forbearance of God, by his patience with us, and it would lead us to repentance. We would wake up every morning thankful and grateful, seeing that his mercy is new every day because we are in need of his mercy every day. We would not live in sin and go on in sin, unaware of our sin and faithless. 
that we would deal with our sin. We will not become perfect, but in his kindness, he will lead us to repentance. And in repentance, he will sanctify. And by his spirit, he gives grace that we continue to pursue. And by the end of your life, you will probably think of yourself as a far greater sinner than on the day you were saved. But in God's grace, you will be a far greater example. You will be a light to the world in the way many aren't. Because he has done a mighty work. Because he has been faithful. But this passage ends not with the fruit of sanctification, but the fruit of an unrepentant heart. If you know that's the path that you're on, if you know repentance is not part of your life, if you know there is sin that you are living in, be comforted by Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What do you do when sin is overwhelming? What do you do when you know that you have fallen short? What do you do when you know that you are a sinner? What do you do when you stop measuring the world by your own righteousness, but come into view with the glory of God and have no hope? You trust Christ. He is the gift. He is the free gift, and you are justified not by your doing, but by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. Redemptions mean you have been bought for a purpose. It means you have been purchased to be something you were not. You who were once a slave have been made free. You who were once condemned in sin have been made righteous. You who were once a foreigner have been brought into his household. You who were once self-righteous have been brought to repentance that he might be glorified. Let's pray that God would be so good and so kind that as we look at the Pharisees and we quickly think, how disgusting and how hateful are they? That we, as Roman 2 instructs us, would not look too quickly to relate ourselves to Jesus or to the tax collectors and sinners, but to find within our heart we live much like the Pharisees. Self-righteous, seeing ourselves so clean that we couldn't even touch others. Let us see ourselves the way God has called us to see ourselves. Those in need of repentance and those who are grateful and thankful and rejoicing always because the gospel saves us, not our righteousness. Let's pray that God would be so faithful to do so. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. We thank you, Lord, that you have not uh, left us without a testimony. Thank you, Father, as, as many of us uh, came from lives where we felt like Levi, felt like those who were untouchable, those who could not be touched or saved, that there was no hope for, that we were just filthy and dirty, and we saw the supposed righteousness around us and felt like there was no hope for us. We could never be like those church people. I pray, Father, for those of us that grew up in the church and, and we looked at ourselves as righteous and sinless and thought, Oh, praise God, I'm here to give the message. I pray you would help us all, Father, to hear the message, to repent and to depend and trust in you. I pray you would humble us that we would be those to quickly repent. I pray, Father, that we would not go on in sin, that we would not refuse or deny or, 
or presume that you are kind and faithful and we don't need to deal with our sin, but that we would love you in such a way that we long to be freed from sin, that we long to be used by you, and that you would help us not just to believe in the gospel, but to repent, to run, to flee towards you and from sin. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.